The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hey, very good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program this Monday. Let's get into your headlines. Asian stocks and U.S. futures moving sharply lower as recession fears push the two-year Treasury yield to a 14-year high. U.S. inflation hits its highest level since 1981, dashing hopes for a peak in price pressures and leading some banks to forecast a 75 basis point Fed hike this week. Beijing officials now warning of an explosive COVID outbreak while Shanghai starts yet another round of mass testing for the city's 25 million residents. And China also upping the ante in the uh, war of words around Taiwan as the country's defense minister hits out at foreign interference. In case anyone dares to split Taiwan from China, we, the Chinese army, will surely not hesitate to go to war fight to all costs and fight to the end. French President Emmanuel Macron's bid for an outright majority comes under threat as the left surges in the first round of the National Assembly election. For the first time in the history of the Fifth Republic, a newly elected president is not capable of gathering a majority in the following parliamentary election. It's fair to say that I've been looking at markets in one way or another since 1988, so for 34 years, and I'm still surprised at your surprise sometimes at events. Genuinely, we talked extensively uh, about CPI on Friday on this show. We talked extensively about the risk uh, for the upside potential move on CPI, whereas the market seemed to be only positioned, only positioned for, oh, we've peaked, and they love that line, and that was what the herd was saying, and as such, we feel very comfortable buying back into assets at these levels because inflation had peaked. And all the economists, we think inflation has peaked. And the central bankers, we believe it's still either transitory or it has peaked. Yes, there are still central bankers out there talking uh, about transitory as well. In fact, European central bankers talking about it being the energy bias as well. So it surprises me that you're surprised that when suddenly there is a solid set of CPI data coming out on Friday, and as such, you sell down aggressively, not having been positioned for the two-way trade. And I still find that quite extra- extraordinary, well into my fourth decade uh, of watching you, ladies and gentlemen, trade this market. As such, we got an absolute drubbing on the long side on Friday. Uh, and not only uh, stocks across the board, but once again, technology stocks leading us lower. The sector that was the worst performer uh, on the session was consumer discretionary, which includes Amazon, of course, down 4.2% for the week though very interesting which sector was the biggest declining sector for the week and we can move on to the treasuries if you like on this one as well the sector that was the worst for the week in the united states was financials hang on a second you lot out there aren't rising spreads aren't rising nims net interest margins supposed to be good for financials that's what you lot have all told me some of us have thought hang on a second shouldn't we start worrying about the economy if spreads are going up and rates are going up shouldn't we start worrying about credit quality uh, about areas where there's stresses either in the corporate bond market or in the household in a week where we saw revolving credit picking up aggressively because another one of those overall mantras that we were fed is that the u.s household is in fire fettle. Their finances are fantastic. Never been better. Well, that's just not the case, is it, if they're using their credit cards in droves. And did you see the confidence data uh, for households in the United States at the tail end of last week? 
if their finance is in such good straits uh, and their job prospects are so great, there's something wrong with that line, isn't there? Perhaps. Let's have a look at the dollar crosses as well. And we're seeing real tension in these markets as well with the dollar picking up aggressively. What, and, and one that's going to get less attention this week is the SMB. They're at negative 0.75 rates. How on earth in this environment are we not going to see more bids for the Swissy? Uh, and as such, they're trying to keep it low with low negative rates. How are they going to do that? When you've got inflation not surging in some parts, but rising solidly, and in other parts, of course, as we've seen, surging. What about Japanese businesses? What about Japanese corporates? What about the tolerance for the Japanese consumer? That was a phrase that was talked about last week as well. You can have Google that one if you like and see how the central bank has been running around circles around itself actually, trying to work out the tolerance of the Japanese economy for 135. Again, multi-decade lows for the yen versus the greenback as well. Uh, Euro has been breached at 105. Now, it'll be interesting to see whether the uh, Euro does continue to fall uh, versus the dollar, but it's across the board. Uh, and look at that, 122.87. I'll remind you that uh, in, in the halcyon days of 2016, Brexit was supposed to lead to a stronger UK economy and a stronger pound on the back of it as well. Weren't we supposed to be 150 plus by now? Dolly on relatively stable, actually, 6.737 as well. Let's have a look at some other asset classes that have been actually pretty Teflon. Uh, we've seen uh, Brent actually putting on last week 1.9%, but even Brent finding itself under a bit of pressure at the moment as people begin to worry about lockdowns. They begin to worry about the global economy. Uh, I know the supply and demand metrics, many of the experts in the industry, and I read you all, uh, think that actually Brent is very, very solidly underpinned at the moment, but 1.2007. Uh, and WTI is trading 118.69. One, one I haven't got at the moment for you, uh, but I'll tell you, is, is gasoline. Regular gasoline in the United States. And I'm not talking about you beleaguered people on the West Coast. I'm talking about regular gasoline is now 4.966. That is up 62% year on year. Oh, that's right. It's not core inflation, so we don't worry about it. That's what the economists would tell us, isn't it? Well, for us laymen out there, I think that's very, very important for household finances. Let me show you crypto as well. Do you remember crypto? What world is crypto? Jeff's going to remind me. Is crypto a store of wealth or is it a means of exchange? Try both here. Try both. Try. Well, are you using it as a means of exchange at the moment? I don't think you are. That's not what the evidence is. Oh, no, sorry. You are in El Salvador. Good luck on that one as well. Is it a store of wealth? Uh, I'm not entirely convinced about that one. 25,561 uh, on Bitcoin. Ether. Ether's been hit even hard. And, and does Dogecoin still exist? I thought it was a joke that you all bought into. Oh, well, anyway, that one's down 9%. Uh, Litecoin down 10.03. So you tell me in crypto world, what are you using it for at the moment? Store of wealth or means of exchange? You're not, are you? Thank you. Right, let's move on. US futures. Where are we currently trading on the US futures as well? We are down across the board. So the drubbing that started, and I'll just tell you a little bit about the data this week. PPI, very important this week. The Fed announcement. Do you remember that brilliant exchange between Steve Leesman and Jay Powell? Are you thinking about 75 basis points? The answer, which reassured the markets temporarily for one session only, was no, that's not in our current thinking. Well, the market's now very worried about 75 basis points this time round. Let me move on because somebody who I've never met before, I'm very excited about meeting, I'm very excited about talking to, is JP Ong uh, and joins us now from Singapore uh, with a look at the Asian markets. Very good to see you this morning, sir. 
Good morning, sir, indeed. And if you were wondering whether or not Asian markets were going to react to that upsized inflation report from, uh, from the U.S., well, let this red wall of worry actually answer that because you're seeing markets from Sydney to Shanghai, from Tokyo to Taipei, really selling off on the back of that. And really, markets here in Asia caught between the proverbial rock and a hard place. On one hand, you have that inflation report from the U.S. really hitting their highest level since 1981, now spurring these higher rate hike uh, expectations from the Fed's decision in a couple of days. But we also have those rising COVID-19 cases in Beijing and Shanghai, once again, spooking investors and raising the prospect of potential of potential revisit, at least, of these COVID-19 restrictions in Asia's largest economy. And we're seeing it really hit the likes of the Nikkei 225, now falling by about 3%. You brought up the Japanese yen a while ago, testing that $135 uh, to the dollar level. And this really also raising the prospect of rising costs for a lot of these Japanese companies. The Shanghai Composite also falling by more than 1% in today's session. But we do want to focus on two particular areas in Asia that are really feeling the brunt. And one of them might be some of the tech-heavier indices, like the South Korean Cosby today, falling by about 3.2%, plunging by 3% out in Seoul. The Taiex in Taiwan also falling by about 2.3%. Take a look at how that's hitting markets out in Hong Kong today. The Hang Seng is down by more than 3%. And once again, one of the biggest drags in Hong Kong has to be the Hang Seng Tech Index falling. And you're seeing these Chinese tech shares like Alibaba, for instance, and Bilibili really pulling the Hong Kong benchmark down. They're down by more than 4% today. Another sector worth looking at also in Asia happens to be the ASEAN region or Southeast Asia. Now, these emerging markets are seen to be very sensitive to these rate hikes. If we start to see rates start to climb in the United States, it could spur foreign fund outflows from some of these uh, from these markets. We're seeing the Thai set in Bangkok today falling by about 1.4%. But arguably the biggest hit in Southeast Asia happens to be the Jakarta Composite today falling by 2%. Now for the second quarter, they were the major ASEAN market that was actually holding on to slender gains. Consider that already wiped out the Jakarta Composite falling in today's session. In today's session. Finally, just a quick wrap. It's also hitting the currency markets in today. Also in today, we did see the Japanese yen a while ago. We alluded to the weakness now testing that $135 handle. But uh, take a closer look also at the Korean won today, also weakening by about half a percent. This after South Korea reported that exports for the first 10 days of June actually plunged by almost 13%, and that also weighing and adding, piling on to some of the negative sentiment that we're seeing out in Seoul. Steve, it's back yeah. to you out there. Terrific. Thank you very much indeed for that. We'll catch up with you uh, a little bit later on in the Can show, hopefully. Yes. <laughs> I thought he was brilliant. Terrific. Yeah, excellent. absolutely. Uh, moving on, let's focus on the uh, consumer price story then, because uh, it is the only story in town, it, it seems, for financial markets. Consumer price inflation across the United States jumped to the highest level since 1981 in May, topping forecasts at 8.6%. Core CPI, which excludes food and energy prices, surged 6%. That also beat expectations. Drivers included energy, which rose almost 35%. And food and shelter. The data increases the pressure now on the FOMC to hike interest rates at its Wednesday meeting in a bid to clamp down on price pressures. Now, National Economic Council Director Brian Dees spoke to our U.S. colleagues about how gas prices are driving up inflation. Energy prices have driven up the price of the pump for families and consumers and the price of fuel oil uh, and natural gas is, uh, is working its way through the economy and affecting elements of the core as well. Uh, we see that, for example, in airline prices. We're also focused on how we can lower the deficit so that uh, fiscal policy can be complementary to what the Fed is trying to do. 
The FOMC will deliver its latest rate decision on Wednesday, with the market widely expecting a 50 basis point hike. However, economists from Barclays and Jefferies have suggested the Fed may surprise and deliver a 75 basis point hike this week. The central bank continues Thursday uh, the action. Rather, when we uh, think about the Swiss National Bank and the Bank of England, they will publish their decisions. The BOJ is not expected to hike rates when it meets on Friday, but investors will be watching for any commentary around the end's recent declines. Let's get some thoughts on the market, Jeff. Yeah, absolutely. Let's bring in uh, Richard Kelly, head of global strategy at TD Securities. Richard, um, laser-like focus now on the shape of the yield curve. We got quite um, significant moves in yields um, after that inflation data. The um, two-year, um, as you can see, out to 315 now. The 10-year, 317, and the 30, uh, 321. So we pretty much got inversion, I think, on the five to tens. Um, How concerned do we need to be about the indications that the bond market is sending about the shape of growth to come? Well, I mean, whether you're looking at the bond market or the equity market, they're all sending the same signal that you absolutely have this risk of a recession down the line. I think the risk is greatest probably the fourth quarter this year, the first quarter next year. If you just look at the typical lags out of gas prices and Fed hikes, just those two areas alone are going to be shaving about three to four percentage points off of growth off that area. So I think that's the same signal you're getting here. Overall, if you look at equity markets, they're telling you the ISM probably falls to 50 or sub 50 over the next two to three months. Um, And in part, I mean, this is what the Fed and central banks have to do to get inflation back under control. You know, while they can't sit there and say their job is to, you know, end job creation for the moment, that that is basically what they need to do if they're going to get inflation back under control now. I think the market had already baked in the idea of 50 basis points. Richard, do you see any need for the Fed to go 75 to uh, demonstrate its desire to get on top of this story. Over the weekend, there were even some economists saying they should go a full uh, 100 basis points. So I think it is absolutely possible the Fed decides to hike by 75 basis points at this or the next meeting. I don't think they need to. I think what the communication is going to be, and I think what you've heard so far, is that extending the period at which they're hiking 50 basis points a meeting, you know, already we think the Fed will take rates to 3% by the end of this year and then keep hiking by 25 basis points increments past that. That still makes it the fastest uh, pace of of rate hikes out of the Fed post Volcker. So, you know, it's nothing to be be uh, flagged at here in terms of where we're going. But I think the point is they are significantly behind the curve. And if you were taking just where the Fed should have hiked right now, they should hike by 200 basis points right now just to get to where they typi- their typical reaction function would take them to. So that's basically, if you want a metric of how far behind the curve they are, that's where they're at. Now the question becomes, do you need to do that all at once, knowing that that's going to have a much more significant impact to growth that may actually make you overshoot to the downside in terms of what you do to inflation and growth? Or do you try and thread this needle? Um, the, you know, the problem is each month goes by, each CPI goes through, uh, and it's clear that we're sort of missing the mark by a lot more than a needle here. Richard, if we just delve into that number then on the inflation print, the 8.6%, it was a miss by 0.3%. We often talk about uh, the central bank not reacting to one piece of data here if you do get a miss. Uh, just put this in context because uh, some think that it might be uh, a turning point at some stage for inflation that must be coming soon. Others still think we could be tracking up to 9%. So what's your view on where we are going with inflation? 
Uh, I think we really can't be focused on that headline number. So, I mean, this whole debate as to whether it was going to be peak or not, I I think really misses the point. The the point is, if you look underneath there, yes, we've got food, we've got inflation, the base effects going through. There's about 16, 17 major components that make up core inflation. Two thirds of them are running more than twice the 0.2s that you would need month over month to actually hit the Fed's goal. So this is not, if if you look at the year over year, and if it only were to sit at 8.6 or come down to eight, that would be a huge disappointment. That would suggest that those month over months are running much faster than they should be. So I think we're at a point where you need to really ignore the headline number, look at those month over month figures. And and that's where when you went through this core inflation of 0.6, energy at 3.9, food inflation just starting to go through. Within those core prices, you're seeing shelter only half of the way in terms of distributing what's normally a lag between the shelter and the OER component in terms of those increases in month over month. And then beyond there, you're seeing significant pass through across core prices. You're seeing correlations with food and energy. So while you would normally look through those components because they're transitory, that's not what you're seeing in this data. This data is telling you these expectations are becoming embedded across a large number of components. And it does mean you need to be extremely aggressive. It means the Fed and other central banks need to be hawkish in their communication because you need to keep this anchored now so that we aren't having to deal with this for the next two to three years. So, Richard, if you just assess what's happened on markets in the last couple of weeks, we had what looks now to be a fake rally. You had tech stocks brought back to an extent and lifting off some of the lows. If you look at the US dollar, it has also uh, started to just march back off uh, some of the, the lower points back higher again. And so it does feel as though we're just turning now to some of the sentiment fading again from technology and the sentiment going back to the safe havens around the dollar. What do you make of the, that pattern of trading we've witnessed? I think the market did get a bit complacent. It did want to feel that as long as the year over year was starting to decelerate, that central banks would feel like they were getting ahead of this curve and catching up. Um, And I think that that's sort of been dashed in terms of the data that's coming through here. I think what we're seeing is evidence that this is going to be more persistent. So I think you look through there, you are seeing financial conditions tighten more aggressively, whether you're looking at five-year, five-year reels and that passing through into credit and equities, that puts that downward pressure on there. So far, I think that's what's keeping a bit of pressure on the long end. So you could be having this curve steepen up a bit more as the market prices in uh, further hikes down the curve, as well as QE or QT in terms of what's going through there. But instead, you're seeing the hike side pass through. I think same thing with the dollar. You you reached a point where the dollar was basically long against 97% of the currencies out there. There was a bit of a relief that came off. We got that come through. But now you're at a point where it looks a bit more level. You look at where the rate hikes and pricing are going. You look at equity differentials. And it's telling you to be long a dollar. So I think we're, we're looking right now, long dollar against euros and CAD. And I think that is something that, that's broadening out here. And then that just feeds back into the financial conditions loop in terms of that tightening that then comes back into the growth and the risk uh, side of, of what the market wants to price into equities and credit. Uh, Richard, um, I'm pretty sure we just put up a strap that's one of yours that says the 1970s wants its inflation back, having called. Um, the sovereign debt crisis uh, wants its yields back as well from the 10 years ago. Quite frankly, there's those of us out there who felt it was never solved. It remained dormant. It was just kicked into the long grass. It's back, isn't it? 
I, I don't so far all the all the analysis we've done looking at the interest rate side of the pass through doesn't suggest sovereign crises are coming through here. You are seeing pressure on peripheral yields, but so far you're actually seeing the sovereigns outperform some of the banking and financial side of things. So I would say I I, I don't think there's any evidence that that even with this increase of interest rates we're getting, and remember the ECB is going slower than than the Fed and some of the other central banks. I don't think you're seeing the pressure on the sovereigns yet. I don't think that that's any sort of imminent bit because of how the debt is structured now. But I do think when you look on some of the household debt, that's something when you look at certain countries and much more the dollar block than kind of Europe and US, where there is going to be pressure on some of the household finances. And I, that for me is much more of a concern in this cycle than the sovereign debt cycle. I, I think you're wrong, mate. We've got negative rates in Europe. Let me just let's take a step back. We've got negative interest rates in Europe as well. And we might get to zero at some stage in the future. Who knows? Maybe in July we'll get a move towards that. And we've got 8.1% inflation in the Eurozone. How is that not putting the seeds in place for a sovereign debt crisis? Well, the negative, I mean, the, if you want to put it into a government's perspective, as long as CPI is running like that, it means their tax receipts are going up by the same thing, but their debt stock is sitting there in terms of where they go off. So they actually start on a cash flow basis, it goes through. I agree the interest, the, the, the interest cost starts to rise, but it doesn't rise nearly as much as some of the, the inflationary uh, perception of what comes through on the cash side of things. So I think from a near-term perspective, the government seem to have the cash that comes through. And remember, we also have the next gen EU, we've got other sorts of funding going out there to support some of the capital investment that's going on broader around economies. So there is other support that also comes in and helps support some of these governments in terms of that issuance. But I do think it is, if you're looking maybe three to four years down the line in terms of where governments will need to tighten fiscal policy potentially more, I think you're there. But I think it, it's a different precipice to say it, sovereign crisis versus just sovereign pressures down the line several years from now. Richard, I'll keep looking at these debt to GDPs rising on every single crisis we get to. Uh, and I'll look at the yields picking up as well. And I won't worry because you've reassured me. Thank you very much indeed for that. Richard Kelly, head of global strategy at TD Securities. He knows I was uh, slightly tongue in cheek there. Well, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because um, as we know, uh, chickens come, are going to be, be coming home to roost. And they're going to be coming home to roost in style as these interest rates go up. And it's not only thee and me and everybody else has got to service a mortgage who's going to be concerned about this. Look at the uh, story about Rishi Sunak. Um, has he wasted his opportunity to adjust the uh, interest cost of UK debt while interest rates were incredibly low? This story is doing the rounds at the moment. Did Rishi Sunak blow an £11 billion opportunity to reschedule the government's debt servicing costs? And you know, the fingers are going to be pointed, questions are going to be asked. Could the Treasury have been doing more in this country? But could the Treasuries have been doing more in all other countries as we continue to see markets now begin to get nervous about the prospect of Italian debt yields rising? 3.75, isn't it? Or spreads ballooning between the Bunds and the Italian paper. No, I'm sure you're wrong about Rishi. So let me just confirm that uh, gilt prices were 0.4469 was the yield on the uh, 10 year in August 2021. Uh, it's currently 2.42 now. No, you must be wrong. <laughs> uh, coming up on the programme, tensions over Taiwan. In case you're wondering, he is joking. Tensions <laughs> over Taiwan. We take a closer look at the war of words between the United States and China. We'll be right back, everybody.
Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. Welcome back, everybody. China has warned of a, quote, explosive COVID outbreak in the capital, Beijing. At least 115 cases are believed to have originated from a bar in a neighborhood known for its nightlife, shopping and embassies. At least two districts have closed entertainment venues as a result, and many neighborhoods are under lockdown. In Shanghai, Authorities are conducting mass testing of almost 25 million residents after a spike in cases linked to a hair salon. China has complained to the United States about the latest American arms package for Taiwan, criticizing what it says are Western efforts to destabilize the region. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin met his Chinese counterpart on Friday amid escalating tensions over the island, urging Beijing against provocative actions. Beijing, however, appears to be standing firm. In case anyone dares to split Taiwan from China, we, the Chinese army, will surely not hesitate to go to war, fight at all costs, and fight to the end. This is the only choice for China. Here, I'd also warn the Taiwan secessionists and the forces behind them that seeking to split Taiwan from China is a dead end, which is simply a delusion. To be slavishly dependent on foreigners to gain some recognition will never work, and those who embrace the idea should stop the daydreaming. China's defense minister was speaking at the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore, where, uh, which is where Martin Sung actually caught up with the German deputy foreign minister Tobias Lindner, who said Germany is committed to defending its allies. What we made with what we called Zeitenwende was a fundamental shift in our, in our defense policy. So uh, we are committed to deliver weapons to Ukraine, also heavy and complex systems. Uh, we are committed and determined to, to strengthen our own capabilities of defense on a national level as well as in the alliance uh, because as the, the, the largest economy in Europe, for sure we have the responsibility also to guarantee the security of our Eastern European allies. Yeah, the latest uh, form of assistance is in the, uh, in the form of uh, heavy artillery as well as something called IRIS-T, which is uh, probably the most sophisticated missile system that Germany has, yet it is supplying that to, uh, to Ukraine. Yes, well, we, we decided to deliver heavy systems, artillery, but also a system called IRIS-T, which is a ground-based air defense system, because um, we have the assessment that this war might go on for a long time in Ukraine. That's the, that's the first reason. And the second reason is we need to make sure that after the war, Ukraine cannot be attacked again. Um, sometimes I ask myself, what if in 2014, after the annexation of Crimea, what if the Western countries would have supported Ukraine more in military means? Would Putin have did the same or not? I don't know the answer to this question. But I think we have to make sure that in eight years in the future, there is no incentive for Mr. Putin to, to do it another time. 
Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.